team for just the wonderful way that you lead us. These are such wonderful friends of ours, and we're so grateful for their ministry. Thank you. And Diane, it is great to see you today and have you back. Uh, We missed you last week and are so thankful for God's mercy and goodness to you. Last Sunday after the second service, uh, a dear mother in our church uh, came to me at the uh, back door and she said, "Um, I just started reading the Gospel of Matthew in this new year. She said, as I read, I prayed. I prayed and asked the Lord that you would speak on these chapters this year. I asked her if I could share that with you today because in 27 years of preaching, I have never had that happen in my life. For me to think that something that I've been thinking about for well over a year, that this dear lady would pray and ask that I would preach on these very chapters, I I don't get goosebumps very often. But I must say that that stuns me to think that God led her to pray that I would preach on the very thing that she prayed for. And then I also noticed that Pastor Hank was teaching on the Beatitudes in his ABF and small group. And so I went to him and I said, would you mind if I preached on the Sermon on the uh, Mount? I've been uh, thinking about that. It's been on my heart for over a year. And he replied that he thought that would be good for the entire congregation. I have also never had a conversation like that in 27 years of preaching. And so without getting uh, too mystical here this morning, it confirms my sense that God has something very special for us as we look together at this sermon that the Lord Jesus gave to us. Now, this morning, I want to ask a simple question about the Sermon on the Mount again, and that is, what's in the Sermon on the Mount? Now, every sermon has progress. It has order. Uh, You have a sense when you are listening to a sermon that the preacher is taking you in a certain direction, that you are on a journey together. And when you look at the Sermon on the Mount at first glance, it can seem very much like a random collection of sayings. As we read through chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew's Gospel, it may appear like there is no rhyme or reason to what Jesus is putting together. But that would be a very big misunderstanding. For Jesus has a very clear theme. And he organizes his message very clearly around that theme for our learning. Now, when only, it's only when we see the forest of this whole sermon that we can really begin to understand the trees and what they mean and how they make sense. And so this morning, I want to look as, as Jesus develops this whole message for us. Let's begin by looking at the main theme. If I were to put it in my own words, I would say this is what Jesus is saying to us. That believers in Jesus receive an inner righteousness. And this inner righteousness empowers them so that we can live out Jesus' kingdom values. 
I want you to take your Bibles again and open with me to Matthew chapter 5. And let's once again look at the theme verse for the entire Sermon on the Mount. This is the type of verse that you underline or highlight or check because it is the theme of everything Jesus has for us. And listen again to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20. He says to his disciples and to us, For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, in a nutshell, this really then is the entire sermon. As you know from studying the Gospels, the Pharisees' righteousness was an external, outward righteousness. It was all about rules and regulations. It was about self-effort and earning one's favor with God. And now Jesus, at the beginning of his ministry, says, No, no, a thousand times no, that will never do. The only kind of righteousness that God will accept is an inner righteousness. And that righteousness must come from the Lord Jesus as a gift. Now, in this longest sermon that Jesus ever preached... He has three simple points about inner righteousness. And that's what I want us to focus on here today in our message, all right? It's amazing that all that Jesus is saying can be reduced to three very simple points. Let's look together at them this morning, all right? First of all, Jesus in chapter 5 tells us that inner righteousness is what is true righteousness. True righteousness is a righteousness that comes from the inside. Now, if we were to ask the question, why is that the case? Well, Jesus gives us a couple of answers to that. First of all, it is inner righteousness that changes the heart. Why does Jesus then, in chapter 5, begin with the Beatitudes? The blesseds, as we saw last week, nine times in verses 3 through 12, he uses this word blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who meet. Well, Jesus starts with the Beatitudes because they have to do with the condition of the heart. Righteousness before God is always a heart issue. It always is. Because it deals with the inner person. And someone has well said the Beatitudes are the attitudes of believers whose hearts have been radically changed by the Lord Jesus. You see, what we must not do as we come to study the Beatitudes, first of all, is see them as something that we work up by self-effort. They are so opposite to what we are naturally as sinners, that even if we could begin to start to practice them, we would not practice them for very long because they are so opposite of the way that we are. Now, there's a parable that Jesus told that I, I think is very, very helpful here. 
I'm not going to ask you to turn to it, but sometime you may want to. It is the parable found in Luke 18. And you know this parable. Let me just um, reference it for just a moment for you. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all that I get. Now, aren't we all often like that? I mean, if we're honest, don't we have to say that we are all often just like this? I'm not like others. I'm not a robber, an evildoer, an adulterer. I do this, that, and the other. I'm better. Aren't we often all just like this? But then listen to this. Jesus continues. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now notice that Jesus says it is the second man who was made right with God. And so therefore, what Jesus is saying is we have to be like this second man. We have to cry out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It is only then that Jesus will make us right with God and then will radically change us on the inside. And then we can begin to develop these attitudes that we find in the Beatitudes because the Holy Spirit will be at work within our lives. Listen to this very helpful comment by Pastor Warren Wearsby at this point. Listen to what he says. He said, interestingly enough, the Holy Spirit is not even mentioned in the Sermon on the Mount. Yet it's obvious believers could never in their own power attain this high level of Christian experience without the Holy Spirit working in their lives. And all God's people said this morning, absolutely. And so only when we are first born again can we start cultivating these attitudes we're going to see in the Beatitudes. Can I say again this morning? Are you born again?
I don't know your background. I don't know your religious experience. I don't know how long you may have been coming to Bethel. But the greatest need that you have is to be absolutely sure you are born again. Because if you are born, not born again, there is no way that you can begin to live out the life that Christ has called us to. And if I could sit down with you and we could counsel together, there was no greater question that I could ask you than are you sure that you have been born again? It is the whole basis for everything Jesus calls us to. Now, here's the second uh, answer to this question. Why is this the case that inner righteousness is the true righteousness? And here's the second answer. Inner righteousness is what changes the world. Have you ever asked yourself this question? Why after the Beatitudes does Jesus then say, we are the salt of the earth and the light of the world? Look at verse 13. After the Beatitudes, he says, you are the salt of the earth, verse 13. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. And we have all heard that wonderful statement from our Lord. Why does it come here? Well, dear friends, salt and light, they are change agents. Salt and light make a difference in things. Uh, uh, a believer here at Bethel this very week said these words to me. We're not just here to mark time. We are here to make a difference, to make an impression in the snow, an impression in the sand that was said to me this very week by someone here at Bethel. That is absolutely true. That is what salt and light do. They are instruments of change. Now, Jesus is saying to us then, the only righteousness that truly will make an impression in this world is inner righteousness. That's why Jesus says we must not lose our saltiness or our character. Look at what he says in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt should lose its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? We all know that Salt without saltiness is flat. So a life without character is flat. And a life like that can never make the kind of impression that it ought to make in this world. So here's what our Lord is saying. Concentrate on the Beatitudes above all because as you do, the Holy Spirit will take them and he will make you into salt and light in this world. Now, Jesus is a master, master teacher. He all knows, he knows that we all need examples so that we can learn. And very wonderfully, in the rest of chapter 5, he gives six case studies to help us examine our inner righteousness. If you've ever been in a class, whether it's in high school or in a university, you know one of the greatest ways to learn is by examining case studies, by looking at examples. And the Lord Jesus is such a beautiful teacher. 
After calling us to certain attitudes and now saying, if you will develop these in the power of the Holy Spirit, they will make a wonderful impression in the world around you. You will be salt and you will be light. He then, starting in verse 17 to the end of the chapter, gives us six case studies so that we can see if we are developing inner righteousness. He shows us that inner righteousness will have an impact in these ways. It will deal with anger, sexuality, marriage, honesty, retaliation, and love. Let me just stop there for a moment. I could use a little help with all six of those, couldn't you? Let me say them again. Jesus tells us that inner righteousness will impact these six areas of our life. Anger, sexuality, marriage, honesty, retaliation, and love. Let me say it again. I could use a lot of help in those areas. I could use a lot of help in those areas. And what Jesus will say to us in the whole rest of the chapter is these six areas will develop in your life as you develop your heart by developing the attitudes of the Beatitudes. And so it becomes very, very clear that true righteousness, the kind we all long for to change our life, is inner righteousness. Let's look today at the second point. Second point that Jesus makes in this sermon after giving us these six case studies is he tells us this, inner righteousness lives for God's approval. The inner righteousness that he is talking about is manifested in this way, it lives for God's approval. The great difference between believers and non-believers is in who they live for. The non-believer lives for the approval of people and what they think. Notice how Jesus opens chapter 6 and verse 1. Look at what he says. Be careful not to do your righteous acts before men, to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now that's the way the non-believer lives. He lives to impress people and he lives based upon what others think. But believers, they live for God's approval. Their eye is on what God thinks. Look down at verse 3. Listen to what he says. But when you give to the needy, Do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. You see what the Lord is saying? We as Christians live for the approval of God. Our eye is always on what he thinks. Now, this is the only safe way for us to live because it keeps us true. 
When we live this way, it keeps us honest with God and honest with ourselves. When we start pleasing people, hypocrisy will slip in. And when hypocrisy slips in, we take our eye off of God. And I can say to us this morning, the most dangerous place for a Christian to be is in a place where they have divided eyes. One eye on God and one eye on trying to please what people think or want. That is the most dangerous place For a Christian to be. Now what Jesus does in this section of his sermon. Is he takes three very common areas. That were very easily abused in his day. The areas of giving. Praying. And fasting. And he uses those as examples to show That the true believer lives for the approval of God. By the way, did you you know that years ago, churches used to publish their members giving at the end of the year? Did you know that? Churches used to, at the end of the year, make publicly in a list what everyone gave. Uh, Can I just say to you, that's one practice I'm glad is gone. Uh, good riddance to that practice. One old timer told me this one time. He said two men in his church were neck and neck at the end of the year in who gave the most. And the one fella really wanted to win. So on the last Sunday, at the last moment, he put a little extra in so he could win. And when the entire church membership was published as to what they gave, everyone saw that he came out on top. Do you see the danger in what he did? He gave for himself, not for God. His purpose was wrong. His motives were wrong. And this one thing I know. When your purpose is wrong and your motives are wrong. Your life will soon be wrong. I know that without any doubt whatsoever. And so what does Jesus say about someone like that? Verse 2. I tell you the truth. That man received his reward in full. The life that God will ultimately reward is the life that is lived for his approval. Now at this point in the sermon, the Lord introduces the Lord's Prayer. Have you ever wondered with me, why is it in the Sermon on the Mount at this place, the Lord would now introduce to us the famous Lord's Prayer. Let's pray it together here this morning because it's at this place that Jesus introduces it. Let's read it together. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, why is that here in Jesus' sermon? Here's the answer. This is how we pray when we are living for God's approval. Does that all of a sudden bring new meaning to the Lord's Prayer? The Lord's Prayer is a God-focused prayer. And this is how we pray If we are a person living for God's approval. Now I'm indebted to a Bible teacher by the name of Robert Gulick. Who as he studied the Sermon on the Mount. Noticed this. The rest of chapter 6. And the beginning of chapter 7. Jesus applies the Lord's Prayer to us. What an interesting insight that is. As we begin at verse 19 of chapter 6 through the first part of chapter 7, Jesus now starts to apply to us the Lord's Prayer, which is a God-focused prayer, which indicates whether or not we are living for God's approval. So follow this with me now. This is just so helpful. When we pray, Lord... Your name be hallowed. Your will be done. Your kingdom come. Then we will lay up treasure in heaven. We will serve God, not money. So look at chapter 6 and look at verse 24. Jesus says, you'll not be able to serve God in money. That's the first part of the Lord's prayer. When we pray, Lord, give us this Day, our daily bread. We will not be obsessed with drink, food, and clothing, and materialism like the world around us. And that's why in verse 25, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or what your body, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food, and the body more important than clothes? And that corresponds to praying, give us this day our daily bread. So we notice first in this application of the Lord's Prayer that God is our priority and then God is our provider. Now, when we pray, Lord, forgive us our debts as we forgive others who have debts against us, we then won't harshly judge others. So look at chapter 7, verse 1. Do not judge... Or you too will be judged. And we don't do that because we live in God's presence and we know God is our judge. And then when we conclude with, deliver us from evil, notice with me verse 6. Don't give dogs what is sacred. Do not throw your pearls to pigs. We won't do that because God is our protector and we have prayed to him, Lord, deliver us from evil. Now that leads to verse 7 of chapter 7 where he says, I want you to ask and it will be given to you. 
Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Why do we do that? Well, we've prayed. Our Father who art in heaven, God is our Father. And then notice how this whole section ends in verse 12 with the golden rule. Verse 12, so in everything do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Why do we practice the golden rule? Because God treats us in this very way and our Father is our pattern. Now we begin to see how this makes sense. The Lord's Prayer is how to pray and then Jesus shows us how to live the way that we do pray. It is a wonderful, wonderful way of helping us understand how to live for God's approval. While I was on vacation uh, with my family, uh, we went to a Chicago mall. And it was two degrees below zero. I thought, what good is it being on vacation when our weather is very much like it is from what we left? And as we pulled into this Chicago mall, there was a guy who could not get his car started. My brother-in-law, John, immediately pulled up in front of him, got out, got out his jumper cables, and uh, tried to jump the car, but it was no use. I was over here standing in the cold, saving my brother-in-law's parking spot, because the mall was full that day. When he could not get the car restarted, there was a Sears Auto Center in the mall. The next thing I noticed, my brother-in-law gets out his tools, he goes over and unhooks the battery cables, Then he unhooks the clamps that are holding the battery in. He takes out the battery, gives it to the guy so that he could then take it to the Sears Auto Center at the mall. Can you imagine what is going through this man's mind? Who is this guy? Is he an angel or or something? At that point, I got into the act. I remembered in my wallet, I had a kindness card that I had received at our church through the Outreach and Missions Board. And as this man stood there, I've never seen a man with such a smile on his face who had a dead battery. I handed him the kindness card. I said, I've watched my brother-in-law for many years. This is why he just did for you what he did. On the card is John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Continue in my love. My brother-in-law did not do that for any praise that day. He had no idea I had this card in my pocket and I would pull it out. My brother-in-law did that for one reason. He has inner righteousness. And because he has inner righteousness, he wants to live for the approval of God. 
And one of the things that pleases God is when we practice the golden rule. Do to others in everything what you would have them do to you. For this is the summary of the whole law and the prophets. And that day I saw in action in a small way a man who has inner righteousness. God is his pattern, and that's why he did it. And I pulled out my little kindness card that my brother-in-law might be seen for salt and light, that a stranger might walk to Sears Auto Center thinking about God and maybe praising Him. How wonderful this is. True righteousness is inner righteousness. It comes as a gift through the new birth. And then that kind of righteousness leads us to have an eye, a single eye, focused on God and God alone that we might live for His approval. Now there is a third and final point in this sermon. And perhaps this final one, after the application of the Lord's Prayer, is the one that perhaps is the most difficult for us. Inner righteousness is tested. Inner righteousness is tested. Often we hear that we should never question our salvation. We hear if we've made a decision, walked an aisle, prayed a prayer, that we should never ever examine our salvation, but that we should assume that we are eternally saved. But I want you to notice that Jesus did not think like that. Jesus said we ought to examine our salvation. One of my favorite quotes of all time is from Pastor Adrian Rogers. Look at what he said. He said, a faith that hasn't been tested can't be trusted. It was interesting yesterday listening to our brother in the men's breakfast mention that very thing. That God allows our faith to be tested to see whether it is real or not. And as Jesus concludes the Sermon on the Mount, understanding this very truth that a faith that has not been tested cannot be trusted, he applies three tests that indicate whether or not we have true salvation. Look with me at verse 13 and 14 of Matthew 7. And let me just read for you the first test, and then I'll put them all up on the screen as we are just kind of viewing them this morning. Look at what Jesus says. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction. And many enter through it, but small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life. And only a few find it. And then in verse 13, watch out for false prophets 
They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. And then drop down to verse 24. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And here are the three tests that have now become so famous in our thinking. There are two ways, the broad and the narrow. And the question is, am I on the narrow way? The vast majority are on the broad way. Jesus is speaking to very religious people. But he says the true believer is on the narrow road. Then there are two types of fruit. There are false teachers that will come. You will know them by their fruits, he says. There is good fruit and there is bad fruit. And so the question becomes, am I following the true teaching? As we do visiting every week during the year in our church, we meet all kinds of people. And it never ceases to stun me how confused people are. So many people have been misled and led astray. And Jesus gives us this very simple test. There is good fruit and bad fruit. And are we listening to the true teaching that produces the good fruit? And then we know about the two foundations. There is rock and there is sand. And the person on the rock is pursuing the will of God. And Jesus says, am I doing the Father's will? Now as I look at those tests, there's good news. The good news is that Jesus empowers all that he has saved to pass these tests. Isn't that good news? Jesus empowers all that he has saved to pass these tests. And there is no greater joy to know that your salvation is real and your salvation can be trusted Because it has been tested. I'm so grateful Jesus concludes this way. Because it really is an encouragement. As we see the Holy Spirit. Working in our lives to draw us after these very things. In just a moment we're going to sing together. And we will move on to other things. The evil one who is present will come and he will take the things of this world to distract us from what we have heard this morning. And I want to take a moment for us to bow before the Lord and to do some heart searching at this very moment so that we might respond to Jesus and what he wants to do in our hearts. If you would open, close your, 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 your eyes and, and bow your heads with me this morning. Let me once again just come to you with the question. Have you truly been born again? That has to be bedrock. 
or you will not be able to be what Jesus wants you to be. And I would love to just give you that chance again this morning. Would you just from your own heart say, Lord, I know that I'm undone. I know that I am like that tax collector. I'm not even worthy to lift my eyes to heaven. If I were truly honest, I would have to say, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But would you say, Lord Jesus, I know that you died for me to pay for my sins. I know that you rose again that I might have life. And right now, I repent. I turn from my own way and I turn to you. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus, right now and be my Savior. Come into my life, Lord Jesus, and be my Lord. Forgive me of all of my sins. Make me a child of God. Give me the gift of eternal life. And would you then say, Lord Jesus, from this day forward, I will follow you. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving me. And then if we know the Lord this morning, we can pray in a different way. Lord, help me to focus on the attitudes of the heart and the Beatitudes above all things. Because, Lord, true righteousness is from the inside, working to the out. And I will never be salt and light apart from the character that you want to make within me. Lord, help me. Help me to evaluate my life. And to focus above all on the inner life. Then, Lord Jesus, help me to evaluate my eyes. Do I have divided eyes? Do I have one eye on God and one eye on what other people think and how they want to live and what they want me to do that I would please them? Lord, am I trying to serve two masters? Do I have one foot in the world and and one foot with Christ? Am I straddling the fence? Or am I living to be pleasing to you and for your approval? And then, Lord, am I willing to allow my claim of salvation to be examined and to be tested? Oh, God, am I really on the narrow way, not the broad way? Am I listening to the true teaching that is reflected in good fruit in the lives of those who are teaching rather than in the bad fruit that is so true of all those who corrupt your word? And then, Lord, am I building on the rock? Am I not just saying the right things, but am I really seeking to do the will of the Father? 
Lord, help me that I might let you examine me. That I may have cause for great joy and wonder because eternal life has truly come into my heart. Oh God, today, hear those prayers from your people. We love you. We surrender to you today. For Jesus' greater glory. In His name. Amen.